0: In some cities, you arrive with a to-do list. In New Orleans, you arrive with a to-eat list. Few destinations have so many distinctive dishes on offer, from big bowls of gumbo and jambalaya to handheld treats such as po' boys and beignets. So where does this culinary creativity come from? And what are the dishes you absolutely must try while you're in town? That's what we're going to find out today on I Know This Place. I'm Ulti Yonka, and joining me is a woman who literally grew up on this stuff. Liz Williams is a native of New Orleans and the founder of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Liz, thanks for coming along. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So one of the things I love about New Orleans is food is so important here that allegedly the first rebellion here was about food.
1: That's true. That is our origin story. So the story goes. Um, that at least one version of the story, that the casket girls who were sent over to be married off to people in New Orleans were so frustrated by the fact that they weren't able to find what they were used to cooking and they had to learn how to cook what was grown here or came from here that they stormed the mayor's home beating pots and pans with their wooden spoons and demanding that someone give them cooking lessons. And supposedly, the mayor, who was uh, Bienville, had his housekeeper, supposedly named Madame Langlois, had her teach all these women how to cook the food. And it was like the very first cooking school.
0: So this, one of the city's founding stories is a cook-in-school to make sure everyone knows how to cook delicious food with what they've got.
1: That's right. It's so important to ide- our identity that we had to begin our city with this very thing.
0: Fabulous. Is that a true story? No. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it tell us about a city that it's made up a story about a food rebellion
1: well i think anytime you have an origin story it's because you need to explain why to yourself why you have whatever it is and in this case it's a cuisine and so i think it shows how very important the cuisine is to us that we thought at the very very beginning it needed to be established
0: <laughs> all right so let's try and pick apart what really happens, the ingredients that go into this fantastic cuisine, and does it go all the way back to the Native Americans? Is is New Orleans cuisine, does that still use some of those traditional ingredients? It
1: absolutely does. Um, one of the most important things that we eat is gumbo, and our gumbo is often seasoned with filet.
0: Okay, hang on. Let's Let's start by talking about what a gumbo is. It's a I described it to someone as a stew and they went no 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 and I went soup and they went no 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 so what the hell is it?
1: (laughs) So it's something that's a cross between a soup and a stew it's kind of in the middle you eat it like a soup but it's thicker than a normal broth would be but it's not as thick as a stew.
0: And it's got a whole jumble of ingredients is that right?
1: That's right it's definitely an amalgam of whatever you have And it's something that everybody's gumbo is different. But if I go to your house and eat gumbo, I know it's gumbo. And it's kind of the way we can recognize each other, because we always know it's gumbo, (laughs) even though it's different from our gumbo.
0: (laughs) Okay, so you were saying one of the ingredients in the gumbo is something called philae.
1: Philae, that's right. So philae is powdered, dried leaves of the sassafras tree. And the sassafras tree is native to America. And it was something that the Native Americans used to thicken various kinds of soups and stews that they made. And it has a flavor. So it's not just a thickener. It's not like cornstarch or something. It actually has a flavor. And um, we still use it today.
0: Okay, so in this quintessential New Orleans dish, you've already got an essential Native American ingredient in there. That's correct. OK, so that tells me that, that when European settlers come, in this case, the French or the French Canadians, but we'll get into that in a minute, they were open to native ingredients. They,
1: they were. So the founders of the city, Bienville and his brother, Iberville, um, they, they're the Le- Le uh, they were the Lemoine brothers. They were French Canadian trappers. Um, but in those days, no one called them French Canadian. They were just French and they came, and because they were so familiar with working with Native Americans, they came down here and they knew that the Native Americans would help them find food, let them know where it was so that if you were going to get oysters, well, they would tell you where the oyster beds were, or if you could eat this or that or whatever. So they did that with, with alacrity because they were used to it, and then the French people who came over from France, who were sent over by the government, they then simply were um, able to know where things were.
0: So it's interesting because Australia was settled by the British, and of course, the second the British arrived, the French sailed around the corner, so missed by this much. And you know, there's a lovely strand of thought of, well, what would we be like if we'd been settled by the French? What do you think the French influence broadly was on New Orleans cuisine?
1: Well, I think that the thing that was the most important element that the French brought was certain ingredients that they brought with them and an openness to good food and good eating. So they weren't as worried about it being like it was from their home because they were still in France And so they were still eating French food when they were here. Okay, stop there and
0: explain that. How were they still in France when they're sitting down here in what's now Louisiana?
1: Well, the French believed that whatever they owned was part of France. So it might have a different name so that you could, the way cities have different names or whatever.
0: Or you might have to sail there for several weeks to get there. It didn't
1: matter. It was still France. And so they were still in France.
0: So this is very different to the British attitude.
1: Totally different, because the British believed that there was England and there was the colony. And if they sent you over, you wanted to remain British or English. But in in, in New Orleans, you were still in France. So you were still French. There was no change.
0: So the fact that you were eating alligator was OK because it's a French alligator.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: So there's an openness then and that allows, that's a a philosophy that allows lots of different influences to come in over the years.
1: That's right. This is the time that the restaurant and haute cuisine was developing, developing in Paris. So all of those attitudes that allowed that to develop came over here with the people who came from Paris, from the prisons or whatever, to New Orleans.
0: Okay. So you've got a period under French rule, but then what a lot of people don't realize is that for a while New Orleans was also under Spanish rule.
1: That's right. In the middle of the 18th century, France ceded New Orleans to Spain. And so then we were under Spanish influence. And so that meant that we had spices introduced here. Um, Rice was something that uh, the Spanish were fond of already and looked for because our climate would support it. And um, the, uh, the French and Spanish, the Spanish in particular, were the importers of slaves. And so that was another very important influence on the food, even though that seems indirect. Because first of all, the, um, the Africans knew the technology for growing rice. And so that was an important thing for them to be doing.
0: Oh, okay. So so because they knew how to do this, then you could plant rice and have lots of it. And, of course, you're in a river delta, so you've got lots of water. That's
1: right. That's right. And also then the African slaves became the cooks in people's homes. And so their techniques and their... Um, Uh, Their history and cuisine also influenced what we eat. So red beans and rice, for example, is very quintessentially African. So we have beans in America, and there are peas in Africa and Europe, except for the fava bean, which is their little bean in (laughs) Europe. But um, we had so uh, peas and rice, which was a very African dish, became beans and rice here.
0: Okay, and since since you've brought up the red beans and rice, because I'm fascinated by this, because apparently in New Orleans, that's traditionally what you eat on Monday. That's correct. Why is that?
1: Well, there are a number of theories, but the theory that I think is the most plausible is that Monday was very often wash day, and that meant that you needed to keep water boiling all day long because so you... So
0: this, this is before washing machines, so... Oh, absolutely. Washing is... Actually, when you think about it, it must have been the most hideous job around. Can you
1: imagine washing sheets and things like that by hand?
0: So you've, what do you do? You get a big cauldron, you boil it up, and you put sheets and your laundry in, in with lye or something? With, with
1: lye or some kind of soap that you've made. And there's a whitener, so maybe ash or something, you know, that, which is the lye. And then it uses a lot of fuel so you want to use that fuel as efficiently as possible so you can set a pot of red beans which has to cook for hours um, in the same fuel and it can be tended to while you're watching the laundry
0: okay so this is something that you don't have to give a lot of thought to it's going to take time anyway you've got that fire going and at the end of a day of backbreaking work
1: that's exactly right you have red beans and rice But the whole family, and that was, to me, something that's important about our cuisine. We don't have food of different classes. Slaves ate the red beans and rice, and so did the families. And so we, rich people today, eat red beans and rice. It's part of our identity. And that's what makes it a cuisine, as opposed to just some dishes that are known in this city or that.
0: Fantastic. Okay, so I think what most people know about New Orleans cuisine is there's Cajun and there's Creole. And they don't really know the difference and I've heard a number of different explanations including something as simple as Cajun being poor people and Creole being rich people, but I'm guessing it's more complex than that.
1: Yes, it is. So in the middle of the 18th century, There was a time when part of New France, which is Canada, um, was ceded to England. And the English cast out the French, especially who were there, especially those that wouldn't convert to Protestantism and pledge allegiance to the the king. So they, they left and a group of them came to Louisiana And they lived separately, not in the city of New Orleans, but because we were French-speaking, they came here. And they lived in the country. And they, in Newfoundland, they had been uh, fishermen. They had um, been people who foraged for food and whatever. Very short growing season up there. So they weren't big time farmers. But they moved to New Orleans, no, I'm sorry. They moved to Louisiana. um, They're west of New Orleans and they continued to be fishermen, hunters, and and foragers. So they were not eating all of the things that were available in New Orleans. New Orleans was a port city. We had all kinds of things available to us, and the Cajuns ate very simply, mostly one-pot dishes, things that they could either forage, hunt, fish, or grow. And in, in, in New Orleans, where we had Creole food, and they were called Acadians because they came from Acadia and um, they that got in once we became American Acadian became Cajun by simply dropping the first syllable right Right. exactly the words change so in in New Orleans was Creole food which was much more like city food And instead of everything being cooked in one pot, now you could cook something in one pot, but you also probably had other things that went with it. So you could have a jambalaya or a gumbo, but your gumbo would have been your first course, and then you would have had maybe fried shrimp and um, vegetables and things like that. Cajun food would have all been cooked in one pot, and you just ate that that one course. So that was really the food of the poor,
0: yes. <laughs> We've got a lot of action happening around us now, don't we, with yeah. the other conversations. But sorry. So that's the food of the poor. And,
1: and, and not even only poor, but it's very agrarian and isolated. Whereas the food of the city in New Orleans gave you a lot more variety and um, was a lot more interesting.
0: So can you tell us some dishes that are typically Cajun and some that are typically Creole?
1: So a typical Cajun dish would be cochon de lait, which is a roasted um, suckling pig. And, of course, it was um, a simple thing. You just took the pig and you put it in the ground and put charcoal on top of it. You put
0: it in the ground.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, you did.
0: OK. And, that's that's not how I, I traditionally associate that as, I don't know, Polynesian or something. But this was the method that this they was, used.
1: This was very, uh, very much the method that was used here. Now, it's not what they do today, but it was the traditional way to do it. And then um, in addition to that, you would have um, a boucherie often. Um, so th- because there was no refrigeration, if you killed a pig, you shared a lot of the, the meat and Um, uh, and you made something, you made blood sausage, you made, which was a boudin noir, Uh and then you made uh, a a white boudin, boudin, which is made with livers and lungs and hearts and everything with rice that's stuffed into a sausage casing. And um, so those are very, very Cajun, very Cajun things. But also gumbo and... Um, also, jambalaya, but we eat gumbo and jambalaya in New Orleans, too. They're just cooked differently.
0: Okay, so you've mentioned jambalaya. What's, what's jambalaya? That's, it involves rice, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Jambalaya is a rice dish that, in Creole jambalaya, also always contains tomatoes. Um, so you would have the, what we call the trinity, which is our mirepoix, which is onions, uh, bell pepper
0: and celery. So bell pepper is what we call capsicum. And this is, this is the stuff that's diced up small and then put in at the start of pretty at much everything. At the beginning, that's right. So you don't cook something without whacking those in. At that's the start. right,
1: right. That's our mirepoix. And so you, you cook that, um, You then you add whatever you had. It was traditionally a leftover dish. Today, people make it from scratch, but it used to be you took leftover rice because we never threw anything away. <laughs> and um, so you would let it dry, you would spread it out and let it dry because everything turns to moldy mess because of our climate. climate. So uh, you had to dry it out. So you um, uh, add it with whatever you had. You had a couple of oysters, a few shrimp, a piece of chicken left over, maybe a piece of ham, and then you added it with water, tomatoes, and rice, and the rice would reabsorb the liquid and you'd have this wonderful dish. Um, You never gave it to guests because it was leftovers. Everybody knew it was leftovers, but that was no reason for it not to taste wonderful. So it was Paul Prudhomme who basically said, uh, one of the important chefs of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century here, and I think he really popularized our food, um, he said, everybody loves this, let's just make it from scratch. <laughs> and if you if you like um, sausage and chicken in your um jambalaya, well, then let's, you make that. But if you like all kinds of seafood in your jambalaya, well, then you make that. You know. So today, it's really very, um, very idiosyncratic. But of course, it was nev- there was never a recipe before, because it was only a methodology. This is just take everything out of your, out of your larder you know, and, and cook it up before it goes bad.
0: So there, there is a, a pride in the city today about its food.
1: Oh, absolutely. Our identity is really united by our food. Um, I've said, you know, your gumbo and my gumbo are different, but I know it's gumbo, you know my gumbo is gumbo, and we recognize each other in this way. And um, you can like different music, you can like all kinds of different things, but we all eat. (laughs) And this is part of who we are. And we really saw that after Hurricane Katrina when 85% of the city was just inundated and people had to leave. We had this huge diaspora because for three weeks we were underwater. And so you couldn't stay, really. And we at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum had a website and people would write to us and say, I can't find coffee and chicory in Nashville or Seattle, or Minneapolis, or wherever they were. Where do you think I can get it? I can't find filet in the grocery store. What kind of grocery store doesn't have (laughs) filet, you know? um, The red beans that I buy here are called kidney beans, and they're a little bit different than (laughs) the ones that I know about. You know, it was amazing to me how people needed that to remain who they were. They needed that food.
0: That is, I I mean, it's the thing, isn't it? That's why we derive so much comfort from the food that we know. You mentioned coffee and chicory. Yes. And now that is something most people won't be familiar with. Well,
1: um, we began um, to drink coffee and chicory, I think from the very beginning of the founding of the city, because France at that time was a poor country. So the Netherlands, England, Spain, Portugal, They had a lot of money because they were out circumnavigating the globe. And France was just not as as wealthy. And so when coffee was brought to Europe, it was expensive. And so the French tried to find a way to stretch that coffee. And chicory grows wild in France. And so the root of chicory is huge. It's as big as a potato or bigger. And so you could toast it and grind it as you were roasting your coffee, and you put in about a third chicory to your coffee, and so it changes the flavor. I tell people it's not adulterated coffee. (laughs) It's like if you have a a mocha. You know, Mm -hmm. you're having chocolate and coffee together. That's not an adulterated coffee. That's its own flavor. That's what coffee and chicory is. So I, for example, will have coffee and chicory with milk in the morning. But at night, I'll have pure coffee, which is what we call it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll have that without milk.
0: Okay, so um, while we're talking on beverages, New Orleans is a town that also loves to drink. That's true. Is there a, a historical reason for that?
1: Yes, of course, there's a historical <laughs> reason for everything. So both the French and then later the Spanish funded the city by selling tavern licenses, and they actually auctioned them so they would get as high a price as possible. And then there were taxes on the drinks, and so the more people drank, the more money the city had to run itself.
0: So they were, they were auctioning those licenses left, right, and center.
1: That's right, and they encouraged people to drink, of course, because <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad thing, it was
0: a good thing. <laughs> All right, so let's let's get a bit specific about some of the stuff we need to try when we're in New Orleans. So, if we're going out to eat in a restaurant, what are some of the things we should look for on a menu?
1: Well, you definitely want to try gumbo somewhere. And you can choose, you know, I like seafood, so I want a seafood gumbo, or I like duck, so I want a duck gumbo, whatever. So I, I definitely recommend that. I also recommend a po'boy, I think. Um, it has become so important in the city to have a po'boy.
0: What is a po boy?
1: So a po'boy is a kind of sandwich that's made on the bread that we eat, which we call French bread, that uh, has no resemblance to actual <laughs> French bread. But it's a very fluffy, very kind of squishy inside bread with a crusty outside, and it's very porous because um, it's made with a very wet dough and it absorbs all the juices of the sandwich. So we say if you're eating a po'boy, if it doesn't run down to your elbows,
0: <laughs> then it's, it's not really a not po-boy. a good po'boy,
1: <laughs> yeah. So if you put, if you have a um, Roast beef po' boy, you know, this is not made with processed roast beef. That co- that place has to make their own roast beef and cut it up and make a good gravy that they put all over it and all of that kind of stuff. That's a, um, an important
0: thing. So it's a simple food, but it's not necessarily a quick food. That's
1: correct. That's right. So po' boys, mm-hmm. um, gumbo, a jambalaya somewhere, um, beignets, I think that... Having coffee and chicory and beignet somewhere is really part of the New Orleans experience.
0: So a beignet is like a donut without a hole.
1: Yes, it's fried dough covered with powdered sugar, and they're mostly square.
0: And are they mostly square? Yes. I had a round one the other day. Did they? Did they? The one I had had jam inside. Is that usual? No. Oh, I didn't have a real beignet. Probably not okay I need to I need to get back on the hunt thing
1: <laughs> okay
0: anything else um
1: so let's see I think red beans and rice if you can get that um that's always um something if you're on Monday you can get a, it almost about everywhere head out on a Monday yes, exactly <laughs> um so that's really good but you know shrimp creole is really wonderful any kind of fish, like redfish. We do a, a, a redfish meuniere or uh, almondine. All of those things are really good. Oysters? Lots of oysters. You can get an oyster stew. You can get oysters raw. You can get fried oysters. Oysters all over the place. Um, crab meat, the best crab meat. So if you can get... Um, a crab meat salad somewhere. I would say that you should have that. If not that, you can. If you like it cooked and hot, you can have it um, done with cheese, like in a gratin or something like that.
0: What about something I haven't Gosh. seen on a menu so far this trip, but, uh-huh. but, but that I'm intrigued by? Turtle soup. Tell me the story of turtle soup. That that seems like. Something from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, turtle soup was very, fr- uh, f- very French. And um, so people ate turtle soup in France. And th- we had an abundance of turtle here, so it was easy to make turtle soup. And uh, when you aren't making it yourself and you have slaves or servants making it for you, then it's something that, you know, however hard it may be to open up the turtle and get to the meat and everything, it doesn't matter because you're not doing it yourself. And so it, it's a really delicious thing, and, uh, and we still eat it.
0: Still make today. We
1: still make it today, yes.
0: Interesting. Liz, I've really worked up an appetite here. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for that delicious stroll through New Orleans Cuisine. If you'd like to learn more about the food of New Orleans, grab a copy of Liz's book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Or to hear more podcasts or to subscribe to them, visit my website, uteyunker.com. That's U-T-E-J-U-N-K-E-R dot com. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on I Know This Place.